0: In April 1995, Australia's richest man, Kerry Packer, had 283 kilos of gold bullion, worth $5.4 million in today's money, hidden in a safe inside his Sydney office. One night it disappeared, and no one has ever been charged. It remains Australia's biggest unsold robbery. It was an audacious crime, perfectly executed, by one man, so the police believe. But, as you'll see, this story is not just about missing gold. It's about loyalty, betrayal and revenge. And the new evidence that suggests that this robbery was not what it seemed to be.
1: If he just did it off his own bat, you've got to give him full credit. If the person who owned it was in on it, which people would probably laugh at that, saying, well, why would the richest man of Australia be in on something like that? But to some people, these things are like a sport. They do it for the the juice, the buzz.
0: The story of Packers Gold has been in the news occasionally since, mainly because of a fascination with Australia's richest man. But the trail to the robber of Packers Gold long ago went cold. That is, until 2014, when Brian Cockrell dusted off the file for Australian crime stories on the Nine television network.
2: This story would become much more than a hunt for who stole Kerry's gold. There was this lingering feeling that Kerry just didn't tell the police everything. He liked to work via trusted insiders, and that kept the investigation at arm's length so the police could never get close to the truth of what really occurred. And the story of how that happened is a fascinating insight into how the super-rich manage their affairs.
3: Paul Watson, I'm a detective senior sergeant. In 1995, I was attached to the Special Crime Unit of the South Region Major Crime Squad. It was a Monday morning, uh, and as much as that seems funny to remember this many years ago, uh, you don't forget matters that relate to uh, Australia's richest man, as he was at the time. Uh, I was in the office and a phone call came in. Not directed to me, but I happened to pick up the phone. And uh, it was from a colleague from the City Central Command who knew the work that we did and knew that uh, we'd be quite interested in uh, knowing about the fact that nearly 300 kilos of gold had been stolen from the office of Kerry Packer at Australian Consolidated Press. Okay, you went to the office there. What scene confronted you? Well, very little to to see. in terms of identifying the crime, um, a safe had been cut within the office of Mr Packe. Eh? Uh, my recollection uh, was that it was a very old uh, chub safe. Um, more, I won't say decorative, but it had a decorative look about it compared to a safe you might
0: see these days. This was an extraordinary robbery. The thief had used an oxyacetylene torch to cut Kerry's safe open. An oxy torch burns at 3,500 degrees Celsius turning solid steel into liquid slag. Yet there was just one small burn on the carpet, no more than a few square centimetres. It's almost unbelievable.
3: You had only known about an incident because of a mark that was on the carpet.
0: What was the mark on the carpet?
3: Uh, A burn mark. So there'd been something, to our thinking, had dropped onto the floor during the process of the safe being cut open by the offender. Given that
0: there was just a small cut, and the door was open and obviously had been successfully attacked. What was your impression of the handiwork of the safe cutter?
3: It was a neat cut and very uh, targeted. Uh, it had hit exactly the right spot within that safe to affect entry in a
0: minimal manner. Was there anything on the scene at that stage, apparent to you, that indicated a suspect initially? No, No. Professional safe cutters pay the robber the highest compliments for his dash and skill.
1: He would have been taught by someone good and, you know, through the 60s and, you know, early to mid 70s, there was a lot of safes open like that and normally by the same team of people, which I'm sure the accused worked with and no doubt picked up on how to do it.
0: George is a former safe cutter who worked with some of the country's best tank men, as they're called. George is not his real name and we've disguised his voice to protect his identity. George is sceptical that one man could have pulled this robbery off. You would have to have
1: someone with you. You couldn't do it on your own. I would suggest they'd have someone looking out from the rooftop, the police scanner and a walkie-talkie. And from the rooftop you can see if anyone's approaching. And if a call went in about a silent alarm or someone reported a break and enter at the address, well, you'd hear it come on the scanner and you, the person on the rooftop would alert his colleague who was doing the job.
0: The safe itself, an old chub from the 1940s, would have presented little difficulty. The robber had made an L-shaped cut no more than a few centimetres long.
1: So a safe that age would be open with oxyacetylene. They would burn a hole to the left of the lock, to the handle, sorry, of the lock, where there would be a bar that goes across and he would burn through the bar and the bar would fall out from its position and you just open the door.
0: So then the, the, the three locking bars would retract?
1: Yes. It wouldn't take very long. It might take three minutes to do something like that. Not a difficult safe, very easy safe
2: to open. Not like the safes of today. My name is uh, John Youngblood. I'm, I was a detective sergeant uh, of police in the New South Wales Police Force.
0: After two days of investigation, a new officer, Jack Youngblood, took over the crime scene and began to interview witnesses. So, so
2: what were you trying to find out in those early, early interviews? The first thing that struck us was no one knew. The gold was in there. Everyone I spoke to said didn't know didn't know he had any gold in there. We don't go in his office. Um, we weren't told. So who knew the
0: gold was in that safe in Kerry's office? No, as far as I know, nobody. Richard Walsh was managing director of Packers Magazine interests at the time
4: we just assumed the police would solve it pretty quickly, actually. It seemed pretty easy. I don't think anyone on, the, on, on Kerry's floor knew that there was gold
0: in there, uh, and that was just part of the bizarreness. For a smart man, Kerry's choice of gold store was curious. Such an old safe was rated only for $20,000 cash, not millions in gold. In other words, if you got robbed, insurance companies would only have to pay out a fraction of the gold's value. But that's not what happened, as you'll hear. Early on, this job looked straightforward when a fingerprint was found inside the safe.
2: Right, that was the very first thing that was something that we could work on, was this fingerprint. And we were informed by the fingerprint department that it was a fresh fingerprint. So we made inquiries as to the owner of the fingerprint and he was a young um, safe mechanic. So we thought, well, a safe mechanic knows how to get in. a safe. And uh, probably lost a bit of valuable time making inquiries into him because he, he was living in Adelaide. Then we had to go over and interview him. And we found that he was um, been living in Adelaide for some time. Him and his wife were very religious. His parents were very religious. His mother actually kept a diary as part of her religious faith. She had everything written in it. She used to write down everything every day. And um, on the day or the weekend of the robbery, they were all in Adelaide and her car had broken down and this young mechanic had to go and organise to get Mum's car fixed up. And he was the most unlikeliest safe breaker you you could ever meet in your life. So that was a complete and utter dead end. Paul Watson.
3: As it turned out, this individual, this person had worked for Chubb and many years earlier attended uh, Mr Packer's office and conducted uh, some repairs to the safe and had put his finger or his hand on that particular part of the safe. When subsequently it was cut open with the oxyacetylene causing uh, the air within the safe to heat up and moisture to form on the steel surfaces, that moisture adhered to the oils that had been left on his fingerprint and when dusted it gave it the appearance of being a very fresh fingerprint when it had indeed been there for a number of years. So strike that one off the list. Unfortunately, yes.
0: Richard Walsh, Packers Managing Director, was working on the floor above Kerry Packer's office on that Sunday and heard nothing. And uh, that day you worked blissfully away from 11 until 5 o'clock, you heard nothing, left the building. Did police ever speak to you?
4: No, that's the most amazing thing. I was the only person, to the best of my knowledge, the only person in the building that day. I was occupying an office that was directly above uh, Kerry's uh, office. As I say, there's nothing I could have told them, but I'm surprised that they didn't ask me that. My floor was always pretty quiet, but it was very quiet, quiet as a tomb. Uh, I would have heard any strange noise, and it would have caused me some anxiety, not because I, I didn't at that time even know Kerry had a, a safe, but um, uh, it would have alerted me that he was there and then I would have thought, oh, God, you know, maybe I need to go home early today, but there was absolutely no noise. My first knowledge of it, I believe, was on the Monday when I came in. I mean, obviously it wasn't exactly as though a memo went round and I don't think it was in the papers. it was kind of like a rumour that went round the office that,
0: was there talk of an inside job back then? Was that one of the rumours flying around the building? Certainly not that
4: day, no, but I'd certainly later, definitely.
0: Investigators also had to contend with a bizarre extortion plot. Jack Jungblut. Mr Packer received a letter from an extortionist who says, I know where the gold is. If you don't give me $200,000, you won't get the gold, but it'll also blow up
2: the children's hospital. Do you remember that? Yes, Yes. He wasn't, uh, what you call, one of the smartest crooks going around. Undercover detectives
3: received instructions to go to a car park and leave the cash in a bag on the road.
0: Minutes later, the money was collected and a suspect was arrested. He was just an opportunist. Yes, he created an opportunity to go to jail instead. Correct. Here's where the story gets interesting. Jack Youngblood and his colleagues did not know that other more senior police already had the information that they were chasing, the name of a red-hot suspect. On the day after the robbery, Kerry had summoned another policeman who'd been introduced by his punting mate, Sydney lawyer Chris Murphy. The policeman suggested that the culprit was a man we'll call Mr X for legal reasons. Kerry surprised the cop when he said that he knew the man he was talking about. The safe cutter was always in a restaurant called La Strada in King's Cross, where Kerry was also a regular diner. Mr X was a close friend of the owners. This information was important, but for some reason it wasn't conveyed to the investigators working the case. They were going to have to find out through their own inquiries. Jack Jungblut again.
2: I heard Mr X mention prior to going to Adelaide, but because of this fresh so-called fresh fingerprint, which we later found out wasn't, got to mention before we went over. But by the time we got back, we thought we'd better have a look at him, a good look at him. Uh, the more we looked into Mr X, the better it got, so to speak.
0: The big break came when Jack Jungblut checked Mr X's residence. He had a house in Balmain, but also an apartment in an upmarket block in Leafy, Willara the same apartment block where Packer's ex-secretary, Pat Wheatley, lived. And then you discover the link between Mr X living in the same building as Mr Packer's former secretary, Pat Wheatley.
2: That's right. Uh, We found out that Mr X lived on the bottom floor and Mr Packer's ex-secretary lived on the first floor. And it took a while before we found out that they actually knew one another. Some time later we found out that he was an expert safe breaker. And you had an observation post there in Wallara looking yes. down on the, on the building. Yep, we had an observation post where the uh, we could conduct any surveillance on him. Then you discover there may have
0: been a deeper relationship, shall we say, between Mr X and Pat
2: Wheatley. How far did it go, did you discover? He spent a lot of time on the phone. Just about all his time that he was in his unit, he'd be on the phone. And during one of these phone conversations, he told somebody he was visiting Pat Wheatley upstairs. You could really note that there was some type of close relationship. For intimate purposes? Possibly, definitely was a close uh, relationship and could very well have been an intimate relationship. Paul Watson, all roads lead back to Patricia Wheatley.
0: How many times did you speak to her?
3: We conducted a formal interview
0: in her solicitor's office. And who was that? Malcolm Turnbull. Formidable lawyer. Yes. Soon to be, well, soon to be eventually Prime Minister. Correct. And, and what was the tone of those inquiries? Was she, was she willing to assist? No, she was,
3: well, she wanted to assist, but she was very guarded in what she would disclose. Whilst she was not unhelpful, she wasn't helpful.
0: Malcolm Turnbull's involvement is interesting. Kerry Packer wasn't paying for Wheatley's legal bills. Packer and Turnbull had fallen out over a failed media deal a few years before. So Turnbull was acting for Wheatley, not Packer. And she was no friend of Kerry's either by then. Turnbull declined my request for an interview, saying he could not recall being involved on either side of this story. Wheatley had been Kerry's gatekeeper and her dominion began just outside his office. Pat never married. She was married to her job. For nearly 20 years she managed Kerry's travel itinerary, his personal affairs and kept his secrets. At one time she'd been the private secretary to the Prime Minister Billy McMahon. Richard Walsh. Uh,
4: he trusted her enormously um, with his secrets. I mean, she had previously been Bill McMahon's um, PA and uh, Kerry at one stage said to me that uh, he'd spent a lot, enormous amount of time trying to wheedle some of what Pat Wheatley knew about Bill McMahon out of her Uh, and he'd never been very successful, and he told me, therefore, he felt very safe uh, with her as a custodian of his secrets, seeing she'd been proven, to his sure knowledge, a safe custodian of, of the late Billy McMahons.
0: Packer valued loyalty and secrecy above all, and Wheatley had been well rewarded. But in the early 1990s, this began to change, and this ultimate insider was suddenly shown the door. Wheatley was given a generous pension for life, which included a property and cash, but the sting of rejection stayed with her. Jack Youngblood,
2: But she knew the gold was there. She certainly did. She was working for Mr Packer when he sold a mine in Western Australia and he wanted the payment in gold bars, not cash. That's how he came by, the gold bars. And she was there when apparently uh, the gold bars were delivered and put in uh, his father's safe.
0: Everything changed in the Packer Empire in 1990 after Kerry collapsed while playing polo. He was revived despite being clinically dead for seven minutes. When Packer returned with a sense of his own mortality, he began preparing for his son James to take over the running of the empire. But there were problems. Packer's finances were under pressure. Costs were out of control, so he brought in a corporate assassin from America named Al Dunlap to ruthlessly balance the books. Richard Walsh again.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, Al had come in. Of course, Kerry had had his near-death experience. Um, there were two things going on. One was uh, uncertainty as to exactly how Kerry's health was and, and uh, how long he was going to live and, and what was going to happen after that. Therefore, there seemed to be a need to uh, speed up James's um, apprenticeship. Uh, originally, James had been appointed as my general manager, which was an untidy situation because, in theory, I was his boss, but, you know, a kind of, uh, <laughs> he wasn't your normal employee. But um, But with Al, Al came in, you know, with the empire had enormous number of assets, but it also had enormous number of debts. And and, uh, Al uh, was, I'm sure, uh, brought in to liquidate a lot of assets and, and lower the amount of the money that the empire owed. But Hal was a a ruthless character and he was very keen, I think, to um, break off a lot of Kerry's uh, close relationships, including with Pat Wheatley. So Pat Wheatley got fired. Because
0: she had been keeping a little store of alcohol, and she also liked a drink as well, I understand that.
4: Yeah, both. <laughs> she certainly liked a drink, and it turned out, and again, none of us knew it, that one of the cupboards, what we took to be a cupboard, a mysterious cupboard, turned out to be a mysterious door into a mysterious small room that was <laughs> like a cellar. I'm not sure that that's actually true, but it was certainly what we were told, and uh, that was the basis of our firing her, but oh, I'm sure that uh, there were other other reasons. Uh, I'm sure that might have been forgiven if he, he was keen to get, get rid of her and get his own person in there. Uh, she said he wasn't very helpful to Al and he wanted to have control of everything, control of Kerry if he could. Uh, you know, she had been involved in many uh, escapades uh, with Kerry <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, she would have known about
0: the gold. Uh, so Pat must have been shocked to get the bullet, although it was happening to a lot of people around her. She would have thought she was amongst the... Bulletproof, producers. yes, absolutely.
4: Yeah, I mean, she just didn't see that. I mean, it's a famous statement of Kerry ultimately saying to Al that the way he was going, the only people who would be left in the company would be Kerry and his son.
0: <laughs> Packer had stood back and let this happen. His loyal secretary, got fired and he did nothing about it.
4: Absolutely. I'm um, surmising that James was not unhappy to see Pat go. They weren't close? No. I mean James wanted to put his own people in and I mean obviously his father was going to be the chairman of the company or whatever as long as he lived but but he wanted to I think weaken his father's position by uh, certainly not having someone like Pat with all her secrets and uh, and, and secret friends and blah blah blah.
0: When police confronted Wheatley about the theft, she had Malcolm Turnbull by her side as her solicitor. And due to a confidentiality agreement, she was under strict orders to say nothing about Kerry's business. And Kerry wasn't exactly forthcoming either. For police, at times, it must have felt like they were facing a wall of secrecy. Jack Youngblood. She was not being open
2: with the police, clearly. What did that lead you to believe? We we assumed... Because we asked her, did you tell Mr X about the gold? She denied that. So we assume that she's inadvertently told him during their relationship or deliberately told him, we don't know. And he's taken advantage of it.
0: The cops had Mr X in their sights. They knew he was on close terms with Pat Wheatley, Packer's former secretary. Perhaps he was even sleeping with her. And they believe that she tipped him off about the gold. Maybe this was a long-term game where Mr X knew the path to Kerry's gold was through Pat Wheatley's bedroom. And so he took advantage of an embittered woman. But now the cops needed to join the dots, and that meant stepping up their surveillance. Jack Jungblut again.
2: He had a Ford utility. The number plate, the engine number and the chassis was all in different people's names. He would never park the utility anywhere near the unit. He'd park it down the road and walk. When he'd walk into the unit, the block of units, we were waiting for him to come walk down the side where the front door was and go in the front door, but he never did. He disappeared down the other side and disappeared around the back. And we had no idea where he, where he went to. No lights had come on. Usually you sit out the front and when someone goes in, you wait for the lights to come on to find out where they live. No lights came on. When we eventually uh, did a search of his unit, we found that he entered through the back kitchen door. The kitchen door was at the back. That's the only place he went in and out. So the only rooms he used were the kitchen, the lounge room where he used to sit, and the bedroom, and he had a gym, a workbench, and some weights in one of the rooms. The other rooms he wouldn't use. By leaving the dust on the floor, he could tell that someone's been there. While we couldn't see any lights, he had the blinds and every window pulled down. So the last lifestyle was very basic, even Spartan. Very Spartan. He sat in, on the one part of the lounge because he had the whole lounge room and a coffee table in front of him where the phone was and there was newspapers everywhere. And he would ring up people and you could hear him say, I'm, uh, I'm at Hornsby now uh, or I'm at Sutherland or I'm presently doing this or doing that. And he would sit in the lounge room. We tried to follow him one day and he went all out through the inner west, Petersham, Lewisham, drove everywhere through Sydenham. He eventually ended up at Sydney Airport where the cargo section is and he did all that anti-surveillance just to use a public phone that was inside the foyer at the cargo office of Sydney Airport. Paul Watson.
0: He
3: wouldn't follow a straight line necessarily between point A and point B, he would make turns down dead end streets and sit and then drive back out and continue on. He was aware of some police methodology and we had difficulties
0: in maintaining our uh,
3: observations of him.
0: Jack Youngbutt. What a frustrating guy to work on, he's 100% onto you, he's assuming that he's being under surveillance all the all time. All
2: the time. He'd only been ever arrested once and that was back in the early 70s and he was arrested by the breaking squad went in, was doing a search on another safe breakers' house, and they saw a photograph of Mr. X standing behind a safe. And these pair of safe breakers had broken into the Chub Factory at Waterloo there, and were photographing and doing diagrams of all the old safes, the interior of them. And Mr. X had been photographed in the background without his knowledge. So when uh, the breaking squad found these photographs. they went and arrested Mr X. That was his one mistake in a long career? The only mistake he ever made in his whole career would appear.
0: Well, not quite. My investigation shows that Mr X has a career in crime stretching back to the 1960s. In 1964, he was convicted of breaking into the Japanese trading centre in Pitt Street, Sydney, and making off with £14,000 worth of cultured pearls. March 67, he's in Melbourne. He attacks the safe at the Windsor branch of the ESNA Bank and gets $41,000 in cash and valuables. They get him for that too, and he does two more years. When he gets out, he joins the exodus of Aussie thieves to London, where he turns up in the 1969 edition of Scotland Yard's Aussie Index of Crooks. I'm told he did some time over there, when he blew a safe with a little too much gelignite and took out the wall of the building. Mr X managed to keep himself out of the public spotlight until the 70s, but there's no one I've met who doesn't believe it was him who escaped with Packers Gold. We can reasonably deduct that he may have got a tip-off from Pat Wheatley, but apart from that, did he act alone? Paul Watson.
3: Very brazen to break into the office of Australia's richest man, go straight to a cupboard, open that cupboard, knowing the safe is in there, cut open a safe, take the gold, close it up and leave. And and apart from the mark on the carpet, as I said, no other
0: indication of a crime having been committed. Uh, Cutting the safe was one thing, but you've got to get 283 kilos of gold out of the building. Correct. What steps did you take to ascertain how that might have been done? Uh,
3: we, we could find no evidence to how the gold was removed from the building. Um, that, that remains one of those mysteries of this, of this matter.
0: In part two of Packers Gold, I'll explore some new material in this investigation. There's something that doesn't quite add up in this story. It's a perfect crime that may just be a little too perfect.
1: A lot of things you've got to believe there and everything fits too neatly into the box that I just don't think uh,
0: could have happened. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nicolich. Executive producer, Grant Totter. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand.
2: Listener.